Hi everyone, welcome to the Ali Houston Transforms podcast. I'm Ali Houston, health coach, food innovator and scientist. I survived years of weight problems, mental health issues, autoimmune diseases, surgery and even cancer. I turned my health around by diving into the scientific research, changing what I eat and what I do. I founded Paleo Canteen and the Ali Houston Transforms podcast to not only share this life-changing information, but to engage in a process of discovery and illumination with my guests and all of you. This podcast is made possible by paleocanteen.co.uk. Head over there after the episode. You can find a link to download your free guide, Six Pillars to Achieve Your Healthy Weight. Transforming into being healthy is so much more than just a list of foods. It's a rich process of becoming that never stops. Head over to paleocanteen.co.uk or follow the link in the show notes to find out what I mean. And if you find this episode useful or interesting, please share it far and wide, or even just with a friend. Thanks, and enjoy the show. That's us recording. So um, I've got Sarah Hancock, PhD, with me today, uh, I'm delighted to say, who has a PhD in public health nutrition, and... um, talks about oral health, general health, and the nutritional ties that bind them together. So thanks very much for coming on, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Oh, it'll be a pleasure. So can you talk us through your journey to where you are today? Well, it's been quite a long and varied journey. I I came into a fairly early awareness that carbohydrates and food were fairly important in health in general. When my sister was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 8 and I was 10 way back in the 1980s. And so there was just that awareness of food all the time and obviously, you know, what she ate or didn't eat in line with everything else that was happening at the time had quite a dramatic effect on how she experienced health every day or how her day would go as far as health went, she'd be fine, fine, fine. But then if things went wrong, she could suddenly be very, very ill. And so there was always that awareness there of food and health and diet and exercise and all of that. And then I went off to university and did a degree in physical education um, and did the sports psychology, exercise physiology. And then sometime later finished up in the UK and did a master's in health technology assessment. And we returned to New Zealand as we were just discussing in 2004. And, you know, I had two small children, was busy raising them and doing systematic review work for um, an organization based in Yorkshire. Um, and then, but, you know, in the process of all of that, there were more and more people of my parents' age being diagnosed with type two diabetes and the, also the dental health of our young children in New Zealand was getting progressive, seemed to be getting progressively worse in that over time, um, community water fluoridation wasn't exactly leading to um, redu- you know, an improvements in caries-free status, although it does have an effect on um, the severity of caries experience in affected populations. But you know, arriving at sort of peak usefulness of that. And then became really interested firstly in what we now call low carb diets 
or low carb healthy fat eating. First sort of heard about this in the mid 1990s when a fellow student was doing an honors project in that back at University of Otago. And she was looking at, you know, feasibility of you know, long distance cyclists um, eating like this and paid to go really, really well. But then, you know, we all left university, went off and the dietary guidelines still had us have us eating and continue to do so today, recommending up to six, um, eating six times a day for children and young people, um, you know, bread and carbohydrate based foods, which inadvertently as we as we look into it a bit more do advocate for some of the ultra processed food products you know including many supermarket breads donuts that sort of thing um or whole grain products that are still also highly processed foods and then sort of read more and more about it on the publication of professor grant schofield and dr karen zinn's book that they wrote with craig roger the what the fat series and so I went, well, actually, this is what I first came across back in the 90s. And then I probably ate a fairly low carbohydrate diet anyway. Um, but over time, it added more protein to that on the basis of reading. It was, um, it was a book called The Contented Baby Book. And it was written by the a Scottish maternity nurse called Gina Ford. And it's very, very prescriptive. But there was some handy information in there. And what I got from that most of all was the impact of having protein at lunchtime on how, you, how healthy a baby was at the end of the day or how happy they were at the end of the day. And so I sort of thought, I ran that sort of experiment over a week. So I thought, okay, if I add extra protein to my food intake, um, how does everyone go? And I mean, it just made the evenings a bit easier and which was great. And then contacted Grant Schofield looking at, okay, well, I've got this interest in doing postgraduate work. And I originally thought I was going to do something because I'm not a dietitian. I thought I was going to do something around um, the built environment and getting more people active. And he mentioned the low carb thing. And I said, oh, well, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian. He said, yeah, don't worry about that. And so, so that was interesting. And then sort of explored, okay, where we could look at studying this. And I was sort of more interested in preventing you know, poor outcomes in children and then looked at the dental health issue and found that actually there was a gap there and that actually when you look at the foods that are associated with pre prevention of dental caries, what's well, items like full-fat dairy and um, vitamin D-containing products like meat because of the bioavailability of fat-soluble vitamins um, but also the full fat dairy and then found out that this was in conflict with the dietary guidelines, which recommend, recommend that we take, you know, from the age of two upwards, where the dairy food intake, if you were to consume dairy products at all, should be low fat items, but also to cut the fat off meat and have eat lean meat if you're going to eat meat at all. Yeah, so that's sort of where, so I started my PhD in 2017 and submitted that in mid-2020 and then passed it in February 2021 and graduated last year. Yeah. Wow, it's, it's amazing, you know, where you've, the different routes that you've come through. Um, obviously, I want to talk about your PhD, but, you know, I'd be interested to pick up on baby health as well, something that's come up a few times actually. Um, 
Yeah, Weston Price is one of the first people who got me interested in primal eating, paleo eating, the logic of paleo, as I like to call it. This idea that how we evolved, uh, you know, those environments should give us a, a good indication of, of uh, the environments that should um, help us to thrive in the modern day. And he obviously traveled the world a couple of times looking at traditional societies that were disconnected, not yet connected to the modern food environment, um, modern work environment, and analyzed their, uh, the vitamin content of their diet and uh, their health, uh, oral health status, and cataloged it really well found this vitamin he called activator x which turned out to be vitamin k2 um mm. present in the right form in in animal foods mainly and you know they had such great teeth it was something like one in a thousand teeth across the populations had any caries at all i mean what's the rate in new zealand well, that's really interesting that you bring up Western Price because New Zealand was one of the places that he went to and he found that the oral health of Maori who live on the east coast of the North Island had the best oral health of everybody. But when he got to places like Napier and Wellington, that the, you know, what he referred to as urbanised Maori, the um, oral health and the jaws were becoming misshapen and there were, um, the teeth were adversely affected with that. But he described um, Māori who live on the East Coast as being having, you know, the best health out of all the people that he found in New Zealand, which is quite tragic because less than 100 years later, they are represented in most of the adverse health statistics and that the oral health of small children there is as bad as anywhere in the country. In fact, it's one of the worst places as far as um, poor dental health goes. And most of the time these days, it's attributed to, you know, lack, um, lack of availability of dental care. And, you know, and there are shortages of, um, you know, of service provision out there. But, you know, it's also associated with lower socioeconomic status as well too and that's also the case throughout the country and that in our most deprived areas is where the dental health of children is at its worst as far as um precarious burdens and of course, so presumably yeah so it's sorry, really interesting you know that's a finding that was reproduced all around the world wherever it went was that um you know indigenous populations had the best oral health as long as they weren't exposed to what he called foods of Western civilization. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the Maori then wouldn't have had access to advanced dental care that disappeared over the last hundred no. years. And of course, no. they would have been living in a, in a very traditional way that would have precluded access to cars, shopping malls, um, modern healthcare of all, of all types in a, in a way that yeah. they've got now. So in some senses, you could say that they're living like kings 
relative to how they were 100 years ago, yet their health has, has tanked. So, I mean, we were speaking before and you mentioned there about processed food and um, about a, you know, how that might come in. So do you, think, do you think that's really the thing? That's the, the association, you know, or do you think that's the cause? Where does that come in, do you think? Well, I think it's certainly implicated. I mean, we haven't, there's no randomised controlled trials really on just preventing dental caries these days with diet alone. But it is notable that, you know, when there was no dental care and there were no dental hygienist um, organisations, that these people had really great teeth and an almost total absence of dental caries. So it does seem to show that diet is a primary driver of not only oral health, but also general health, because also completely absent was cancer and um, degenerative neurological conditions and other diseases that we associate with um, diet, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and diabetes and heart disease. People were living until you know quite an old age before it was, um, you know, it was relatively routine as long as they survived childbirth and anything else that might happen is that they were living quite long healthy lives with an absence of those diseases it would be something you know like an accident or something like that that would end your life rather than heart disease or all those chronic illnesses which are endemic these days so it's been it's been an interesting journey because much of the health promotion as far as dental care is for prevention is all around dental checkups and the use of oral hygiene and pretty much downgrades the importance of diet apart from relatively vague recommendations to avoid sugar. And even when my children were growing up, you know, would be talking to various people who'd say, well, my kids have got, you know, had needed to have filling, but we don't eat or eat sugary or drink sugary drinks or eat really highly sugary food and so that was another um, part to investigate and that we did a as part of my PhD I did a systematic review in which we looked at sugar and starch based carbohydrate foods and dental caries and we did find that the high and frequent intake of those foods is associated with um, increased caries burdens because it's quite difficult to tease out, you know, starchy foods because there are all sorts of foods that can be defined as starchy foods. And we also don't eat a, foods, a food in isolation. Like we don't just sit down to one plate of something. And so your mealtime intake, you know, looking at that, well, that could be confounded by the simultaneous presence of foods that are healthy, whether you're having a drink of milk or eating meat or having some cheese after dinner. But we do find that actually it's the frequent and or between meal intake of highly processed foods drives dental caries but it also drives you know further eating because these foods are quite addictive as well too because of the sugar content in them and they're packaged and marketed in such a way that drives further consumption as well yeah i mean controlled trials are so difficult with diet um for many reasons but 
quite a lot of good anthropological stuff, isn't there? Beyond Weston Price, mm. you've got, um, you know, well-documented change of, of jaw and skull shape for any society that adopts grains. You've got interesting isolated finds like, you know, a tribe that was clearly eating pretty much totally yeah, chestnuts, I think it was, or uh, another type of kind of starchy nut. Um, you could tell from the number of nuts in the cave system that they were living in. And, you know, they had somewhat rotted teeth. But then, of course, you've got the question at that point, is there something from without and something from within? You know, if, if you eat sugary, starchy foods all the time, sure, you can show that there is erosion of enamel. But of course, you don't know whether that would happen if you were properly nourished. Um, so mm. um, how do you think you attribute the uh, contribution from eating things that attack the enamel versus um, being nourished enough to resist that? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's something that only sort of um read about relatively late in the phd process and that most of the time dental caries is regarded as a local within mouth reaction to the production of acid in the mouth and then somebody said but what about you know people who have um fruit drinks for instance you know like lemon drinks you know because the um, acid in that is associated with enamel erosion and so started looking at enamel erosion and the different acids that are associated with or the production of acid associated with um, enamel erosion of course you can get that with um, people with gastrointestinal reflux can experience enamel erosion as can people who um, uh, have bulimia and that's often that's an eating disorder that is commonly diagnosed by dentists because of the oh we just had a wee earthquake um oh that, that's interesting yeah whole place just shook and made a bit of noise anyway um so that's um kind of okay wee, 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 enamel erosion right um <laughs> yes so i thought well there's all the there's the production of acid in the mouth that can cause enamel erosion and then started looking into but why does a high sugar diet cause the absolute destruction of the tooth with the cavitated lesions because some of these people with bulimia or gastrointestinal reflux they don't have to, you know completely rotten teeth even though there's acid in the mouth and so i looked into vitamin k2 and stumbled across an article written by who's now a retired dentist called ken southward in canada and he was referencing, and the irony of this is incredible, um, some research from Loma Linda University in which they found that there's a systemic element to the cause of dental caries as well too that is pinned to the high intake of sugar. And how this works is with a high and fre frequent intake of sugar that does increase the metabolism in the um, mitochondria of the hypothalamus. And alongside driving increased insulin secretion, that also drives action on the parotid gland, which is one of your salivary glands. But your parotid gland and the release of parotid stimulating hormone also governs the um, flow of dentinal fluid by which the tooth is nourished. 
So you sort of think of a tooth that's got, you know, the um, enamel on the outside and then a layer of dentin, so, which is sort of arranged like a set of stacked rods inside the tooth. And then that's nourished by the pulp. And so how that dentinal fluid nourishes the tooth is it comes up through sort of a centrifugal force up through the tooth, goes through the dentin, and you get the, and that means that your tooth is actually adequately nourished. But with a high and frequent intake of refined sugars, what happens is that um, that parotid gland function is interfered with and that actually down-regulates the secretion of the hormone, which then also interferes with the fluid flow, which actually stops it or reverses it. So then your tooth isn't getting nourished. And then that's vulnerable to an attack of acid where you have then with a high and frequent intake of the sugars, you know, your saliva is really important in buffering your teeth, um, which is obviously produced on eating, but that does also work to, um, you know, keep the pH of the mouth um, at neutral, which is about 5.5. But so, of course, with a malnourished tooth, it's far more vulnerable to that acid attack. And so what happens is you've got this process going on in the mouth where the saliva is buffering the tooth and maintaining a pH of the mouth. But you've also, but if the tooth is nourished, then as well, too, that does have an impact on um, carrier's development. And so your metallomaloproteinases in the tooth, if that's, um, that contributes to the destruction of the tooth as well, too. Wow. So sugar intake actually comes at it from both angles. From both angles, yeah, there's a systemic inflammatory response that is also a determinant of the progress of dental caries to a cavitated tooth. Which is, with the, I guess, yeah. even for a, for a well-nourished person uh, with high sugar intake, it kind of doesn't matter how clean you, you keep your teeth because you'll be, yeah. you'll be rotting it from the inside. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an inside-out process and an outside-in process and it works together to create that cavitated lesion in a way that's quite different from, say, enamel erosion that is caused through, say, bulimia or other um, purging actions associated with bulimia. So that's really interesting, which means that actually we've got a case for treating oral health in exactly the same way as we should be treating general metabolic health, except in all of the prevention, they're treated as completely separate things that the dentist actually fix the problem. And that's actually how the dental profession in many ways developed, is that it's entirely geared towards remediation of a problem. Reminds but me of it, uh, the modern medical paradigm in general of... yeah. Uh, of identifying symptoms and uh, aggressively attacking the symptoms and kind of ignoring the root cause in a lot of cases. Of course, important uh, to note that if I was requiring trauma surgery or antibiotics or um, investigation about some sort of, you know, uh, unwelcome cells in my body, then I would be going to a doctor, of course, but that root cause analysis is almost totally absent. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to 
come back to the socioeconomic thing because it's really, you know, I, I find it very frustrating. There's a lot of uh, understandable, um, f- you know, deep feelings about this sort of thing from all from all angles. You know, you've got people like uh, Jack Monroe who writes about how to, you know, feed feed uh, your family for 11 pence a day or whatever like she had to you know uh, boiling pasta in the kettle and um, and just really you know living from food banks and so on from a very compassionate perspective of that being the current reality but of course it's just really sad to see food banks exist at all you know yeah. um, you know it's usually they usually rely on donations mainly coming from lower socioeconomic groups. So it's, it acts like a regressive tax. And because you need the food to be shelf stable, so much of it is nutrient poor and it's really just about calories um, so that people survive. Um, it's a sad state of affairs. And if you attack it as a system, then you risk um, being accused of elitism. Um, you know, yeah. it's one of the reasons I, I wrote my cookbook, Low Carb on a Budget, because I wanted to, make it clear that you can't do it for 11 pence a day, but that it doesn't need to be some kind of, you know, middle-class white crusade type of diet that you can eat nutrient rich food and not break the bank. But there's something deeper going on. You know, I remember the, the labor health secretary in the UK in the late nineties, um, uh, John Reed, I think he was called saying, um, it was he's saying that of the working class, just you know, let them smoke. They don't have many mm-hmm. pleasures in life, and I thought that was like so uh, irresponsible. But yeah. you kind of get the logic, you know. It's 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 all well and good from an ivory tower to wag a finger and say this is what you should do, but yeah. there's there's a lot going on here, and I've 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 rambled rather than asked a question. I guess ultimately the question might be what needs to change and how can it change? Everyone should have the ability to eat well and eat healthily. And I find the idea of healthy eating only being a preserve of the rich just completely offensive. Um, You know, and wouldn't we use that as a starting point? And while you know, and it's very difficult to discuss this because I'm very aware of the place of privilege from which, you know, we're talking about this because we're in the ability, we have the ability to afford these things and there's not the pressures which are worsening for many families because of job losses, which is a whole other podcast discussion, isn't it? But unfortunately, yeah, I understand everything that you're saying with regard to the shelf life of foods but and that's where we do need some changes and that we remove you know the GST that we have in New Zealand and also value-added taxes other places off healthy foods but then what's defined as healthy um as well too and you know we've got dietary guidelines world over that recommend inadvertently highly processed foods that are actually highly processed on the basis of their carbohydrates and not but you know so we've got that to deal with but the food that 
the most vulnerable people in the society are receiving through food banks or that they can afford are foods that are also highly addictive. But the satiety element is almost completely absent because of the addictive qualities of these foods. So people are not feeling full. They might have the, the $1 loaves of white bread, but they're not feeling full. And then if you're feeling hungry a couple of hours later, that's going to drive more consumption of those same foods. And it's a horrible cycle. And that's where people do run into trouble with hunger. And that becomes an issue as well, too, because then people are actually feeling hungry. The food's not satisfying as well. So, yeah, and so that's, but if you're working a very low-income job and that and your circumstances are straightened like that and there's other stress in your life and that's where it was really interesting in the qualitative study that you know we looked at um, previously looked at what people knew about food and we designed these novel card sorting exercises where people allocated a set of food cards whether it was red meat chicken bread sweets lollies cakes dairy produce um you know, various classes of vegetable into good for your health or bad for your health. And we found that people actually, and this was really lucky that we were able to get a really good cross-section of 10 to 12-year-old kids, parents and health professionals, whether they be doctors, nurses, a couple of dentists and um, nutritionists and other health, health professionals, that the knowledge of healthy food was actually really high but there's all sorts of layers at all sorts of levels or barriers at all sorts of levels that prevent people from eating what they feel is optimal for their general health. And so income is a factor, time is a factor. And we've all been there. We've picked up a kid from a sports practice after school. They're tired, wet, cold. You've been at work all day. There's nothing thawed out at home. You find yourself in the supermarket at 4.30 with someone who's hungry and tired. And so when all this, you know, and you're surrounded by all this ultra-processed food, so what's what's going to happen there, you know? Um, you know, there'll be decisions made that aren't in line with um, healthy eating. But also getting back to your point about the learned helplessness, it is irresponsible just to do the whole let them smoke or just, oh, well, this is the best we can do. But it also feeds into that idea that your health, and this has persisted for about 100 years or so, that your health is a function of your personal responsibility and your behavior. And I guess that sort of grew from when we were able to tackle things like infectious disease um, with various public health measures, such as, you know, providing clean water and um, and there are also some religious and social mores that existed around the turn of, you know, from the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. And so far as, you know, your um, health as a function of your behavior goes as well too. And so, but we've sort of found that, you know, with all these other, other things in the food environment, just for a start that work against achieving health and the way we live these days with the number of hours that we work and that sort of thing also does, you know, it has an impact on how much time you spend outside, how much time you spend exercising. So that's, um, so yeah, it's, you know, from what you were saying before, there's a lot to touch on there, but 
the, our own health overall is not just a function of our behavior. You know, that there's all sorts of other impacts at multiple levels, whether it's food policy, whether it's the environment that we live in, whether it's the lifestyles that we have, whether it's the other barriers. It's just that much more difficult for somebody who's, say, working a night shift, stacking shelves at a supermarket or cleaning to actually get to a fresh whole foods market where to actually pick up those cheap vegetables. You know, there's all sorts of things that are preventing them from being there, whether it's access to cars, if they're living in a very rural environment, which is, you know, given that you've been in New Zealand previously, if you think of the um, relatively isolated nature of the environment down at the south of the lake and where, you know, car ownership might not be as high or access to a car might not be what it might be for someone who's actually able to go to a village market and buy fresh meat and vegetables um, from the butcher and the baker or the butcher and the greengrocer rather. Um, so there's a range of barriers that we have to actually work through. And you touched on the smoking cessation before, and it wasn't, you know, just telling people to stop smoking in and not by itself wasn't going to be the only thing that worked. You know, it needed all sorts of interventions, whether it was increasing the tax on these things to actually getting rid of smoking inside um, licensed premises and restaurants for that to actually change as well too. Yeah, the, the smoke. I'm not sure I've answered your question very well. I've sort of touched on a few things. I mean, I think no, I think I think you have. You know, you've you've identified what you think needs to change and and how we can start looking at it. I reckon we could we could develop that that a bit more. You know, thinking about smoking cessation. It's hard to find the exact equivalence for food. Um, we have to eat and we don't have to smoke or vape. So, you, you know, you've got these, no. um, you've got these bans and uh, various sort of government-sponsored off-ramps and companies coming up with solutions with uh, nicotine replacement stuff. Um, but there's obviously a double-edged sword there. You know, I, I understand that nicotine uptake from um, young people is pretty high now that the... Mm. The, the damage perceived from nicotine replacement um, therapies like uh, vaping, uh, you know, that's gone, that's gone up a lot uh, because people see it as relatively harmless. But of course, it's quite a powerful, uh, it's quite a powerful drug like caffeine is, but it's everywhere. Um, and mm. so you get bring these things in makes it a bit more socially acceptable so you know there's there's definitely pros and cons but i suppose that's true of any technology so in that respect i think it, it is the same as as ultra processed food which is a kind of technology that hijacks your um your positive drive to find hedonic foods you know, yeah. fatty ruminant animals that just taste sumptuous, berries, nuts, things that are, you know, good to eat when you find them in abundance in nature that your appetite mm -hmm. will naturally adjust to and that traditional peoples looked great eating. If you concentrate that into a Krispy Kreme, then you're not going to get the same results, but you can't. No. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We've got that technology now. So how do we how do we create off ramps? 
people, as you say, they know what they should do, but it's still a big question mark about how we do it. And you, you sort of hinted at it on a societal level, but, you know, we need to think about what it takes on an individual level too, don't we? And yeah, definitely. You know, I, I did the, I did the pre-cure um, health coach training with your main PhD supervisor, Grant Schofield. And I was quite surprised because although they give brilliant nutrition training modules, the um, it's actually kind of against the rules of against the ethics of health coaching to to tell someone what to eat. If they ask you what you, you think they should eat, then of course you can tell them what you think. But you, you almost you mustn't um, tell people what to do because it just doesn't work. Yeah. So, so how do we do it? I think it's a case of, I guess, for the coaching, and I think it's actually quite crucial. I was involved in running a community group um, and that was aimed at diabetes prevention and um, but also, also, you know, helping people who had chronic ill health put their um put that into remission and so we approached it from the point of providing information first and foremost um based on the evidence and you know presented that and or tried to present it in a logical form and then we'd have so would um we had weekly meetings um in a community-based um community hall and people were turning up, you know, you get about 20 to 20, 30 people a week and you provide this information. And then, you know, some of them had the ability to actually find support within that group and you actually realised that it was almost working like, I don't know, say Alcoholics Anonymous in a way, which people actually turn up to this group and it helps with the motivation to keep going. And then so it was interesting sort of exploring that over time while we were actually running this um, community-based group and you know it has a Facebook page and you know there are people um, able to access that quite easily and so it just keep providing you know some basic knowledge but it does require support and you know and those individual even smaller group discussions but also individual levels well why do you want to do this and what's your prime motivating factor and okay well here's the evidence but that's not enough and so then what we finished up doing was doing, um, you know, you do like the basics one week and this is how we would recommend that you eat, whether it's paleo, whether it's low carb, high fat, but these are the things to um, achieve to try and turn this around health wise. And then, uh, you know, for instance, I'd do another discussion, another week discussing, you know, the politics and how we came to be having these dietary guidelines that recommended you know, a high and frequent intake of dietary guidelines. And so that's all, all the stuff there, but also other talks on how to negotiate Christmas and family eating occasions like that and just arming people with some strategies with which they can go out for dinner um, because, you know, we live in a town with plenty of restaurants at being a tourist destination and all, um, and actually have a good time out. But also just some, some of the habit formation stuff um that's really important 
um, trying to think of it as a dietary lifestyle change rather than just a diet by itself because and these are people who have you know been on various diets you know through decades and it hasn't worked and then they put on more weight and then that leads to feelings of um, feeling like they're not good enough and then there's a stigma associated with being overweight or obese and so it's also been you know pretty tough for these people and it's actually but you know the people who are coming along to a community group I tell them that well actually you've done the hardest thing was which was actually step out the door and come along and do all this so you're actually quite a wee way along just actually trying to change this for yourselves and so good on you for doing that because it is hard to turn up at something like this and I was always very aware of how I came across because I've never had a weight problem in my life and all those four people see it as just this slim woman at the door you're more likely to turn around and walk away and so you have to make it very friendly and inviting and kind and all those good things but but I think the support is crucial and the ability through coaching to actually help people come up with the strategies rather than actually telling them what to eat is actually sit down and work with them okay well what is going to work and so some people would turn around and say for instance well you know we've got I've bought all this food and it's cheap and what am I going to do with it I'm sort of thinking okay well you know maybe you should go and put that in your survival kit for I don't know if you have an earthquake or something um and a really bad one and I've lived through that as well too I was in Christchurch for the earthquakes there and um, found myself living out of a survival kit, um, which was actually, you know, there's some interesting stuff around that as well, too, because it coincided with my child's, uh, I'm digressing a wee bit here, but it was her fifth birthday, and so she's going to start school, it was quite a milestone, but, you know, we had, um, you know, no water, no um, no ser normal services, no power, no telephone, so we finished up having to go and um go to a supermarket out of town to go and find her a birthday cake and all the sweet food that you decorated typical child's birthday cake with that's all gone you know um the shelves were stripped you know all the chocolate biscuits all the lollies everything was gone but the stuff that you should have in your survival kit was all sort of sitting on the shelves whether it be tin food that's sort of, so that was an interesting um little sideline you know so people you know go and buy that sort of stuff to cheer them up um when times are tough and it was quite tough because you know there were the big earthquakes but there were just continual aftershocks like that shake that we just had there that happened all the time which is probably why I was able to sit and just sort of notice it and keep talking whereas other people around the world go my goodness you had an earthquake um anyway where were we um that was a bit of a digression um yeah the support is crucial in actually enabling people to find their own goals and actually be empowered to make these changes themselves is I think crucial because I don't think you want as a health coach for people to be continually dependent on you because that also buys into an old medical model that you go to a doctor or you get fixed or you go to somebody else and they fix something and I think why this works um, in the context of low-carb eating or low-carb eating in the context of people changing their lives for the better is that they come up with those goals themselves, they come up with strategies in which they fulfill those goals, that they're aware of some of the pitfalls and they've got some workarounds for those, whether it be for, you know, just changing your life so that you're not 
making decisions at five o'clock in the evening in a supermarket when everyone's cold, tired, um, there's been time pressure, that sort of thing. So we found, I found that was actually really quite transformative work in that way, um, that actually you're empowering people is actually more important than just information provision. So I get yeah. where you're coming from and that from that point of view as far as the work that you can do to empower people so they can get their health in order so they can actually swing the bat at life and do the stuff they want to do. Yeah, it feels almost like there's three categories going on. There's this, the kind of cut and dry information, which should be as good as possible. There's the change that happens within the person to you know really take an inventory of what they want and what they like. Um, and then there's this mm. sort of betweenness category, if you if you like, where it's about the relationships between people who are doing it and also the, between people who are doing it and the coach who's there who's facilitating and the relationship to the information too, because quite often you find that when people experiment en masse, you get very interesting black swans that suggest that your information isn't as good as you thought it was and you have to change mm. the information and it's this dynamic process that um if it's done right people feel really involved with and excited by because mm -hmm. just from information provision is is sometimes counterproductive isn't it it can be yeah and it's what was interesting for a start you know, you know, we started started off doing the information provision. And there were people who were taking that, and the, the speed of the improvement that they were experiencing was really quite staggering. When they just started changing their diet, you know, for instance, you know, they'd go and make some changes, and the first week could be a bit tough, um, you know, but we'd give them, you know, provide some advice around how to manage that. But some of the benefits and people were talking about lack of pain and knees and things like that when, you know, particularly in people who had arthritis, um, all sorts of inflammatory conditions. So that seemed to be quite a good point from which to start if we can just start getting that in order. And so people were starting to feel better. And so once you start feeling better, it's then you sort of think, well, hey, this has worked. And so that's a good place from which to introduce other changes but also develop the strategies for maintaining those changes um, when they're out living with other people and some and a lot of it does involve you know we and you know there's the coach um, client interaction but there's also the interactions they have with the people around them whether it's the school environment whether it's other family members um, how they eat how they live and how we all fit in around that and so a lot of these things lead to a greater understanding of just how humans as messy and as flawed as they are work and live as individuals but within their families and society at large and it is actually not a nice process to be a part of when you can help people influence it for the better and I'd never want to say anything arrogant like I'm reversing anyone's diabetes because what actually happens is that those people are reversing their own diabetes or make changing their health for the better. It's not something that I could ever lay claim to like that because that's ultimately what 
um, you know, the lifestyle change. They're making those lifestyle changes. They're making those purchasing decisions when I'm not around. You know, it's not like I'm cooking their meals every night or taking them for exercise classes or anything like that. But I think the ability to impart those tools to actually help people make those changes um, is a valuable thing to do. So that's a requirement at an individual level. And your work and all this is really, really good. And that journey from sort of information provision in a prescriptive way, which does actually feed into an older sort of medical model where you go and see a health professional, they tell you to do something, they prescribe a drug or, I don't know, cut you open and take something out, which works really well for an acute thing. I mean, you, you know, if you cut your foot, um, you know, you don't want to you know, lose too much blood or bleed to death or anything like that, you know, so you need to get that seen to. But how we've dealt with chronic disease over time has been relatively poor we haven't really made terribly many inroads into that but using that coaching approach that you're talking about at individual family and community levels um i think is a represents a good way forward and then what we were finding with this community group is that they were becoming advocates for other changes like you know they'd write to a local council and discuss things like vending machines at public facilities where kids walking out of a change room after a swim session you know they don't need to be seeing you know a vending machine with coke and chippies and or crisps as you call them over there um and other sodas like that and so so that's you know that's an area to explore further as well too definitely yeah and arming people with, or helping people develop strategies rather than I'm arming you with a strategy, just helping people develop those strategies for how they live and the work that they do because we're all different and we all have different lives. So yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, and this sort of individual uh, requiring to work out what works for them to make the process truly transformative is difficult when you have public health policy that takes decades to really penetrate and turn around. And I think that's often the most, sort of most stark when you look at, um, when you look at how uh, new mothers are, are advised. It's obviously a very touchy, difficult area and a very vulnerable, oh, yeah. very vulnerable time that you mentioned earlier that you'd read this contented baby book, which had helped. And something that I bring up from time to time is a, is a comment in, on the on one of the hyperlipid blog posts, I think it's about um, gluten and um, and casein, uh, one mm. of the dairy proteins. And someone who was reading the blog had, had commented saying, uh, "I think them or a friend had a colicky baby, and it was you know ruining their lives. Very very hard situation. Um, they mm. cut out gluten, I think for some other reason, and the colic stopped." Uh, and she told the, the midwife or the health visitor, whoever it was, and they said, yeah, I mean, we all sort of know that, but we can't tell you to cut out healthy, inverted commas, healthy whole grains. So, I mean, I found that kind of very revealing, very disturbing, um, sad, all in one. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you, you know, that person who reported that, might be kind of dismissed by friends, by other professionals uh, who who would be going by guidelines, which are kind of almost automatically out of date by the time they come in. Um, mm. And 
think of the the misery for mother and child um, across society that could be helped by uh, these types of interventions, which which just don't ever make it through to public policy. Yeah, and that's really important because you know if we want to prevent things like you know if we go right back to the dental caries and the fact that it's the most common chronic disease in New Zealand children and is responsible for a huge level of hospitalization like in this relatively small country of 5 million people you know 30 kids a day are going under general anesthetic these are preschoolers aged under five to get multiple teeth removed because they're rotten um you know that costs 130 in excess of $135,000 of tax pay money per day you know so we're going to spend that today we're going to get up and spend it tomorrow and we're going to spend it again on Friday and then we'll get up on Monday and do the same again um, so you know prevention of that should be a cornerstone of you know um, child health policy but it's not really at the moment it's just you know it's treated with relative indifference really apart from a bit of general hand-wringing over it and then more um more attention on you know getting people to brush their teeth more but without actually addressing okay what's the environment like and putting some things in place to you know downgrade that but and so yeah that's where it could be really interesting to look at intervening in some way in an ideal world um, in that early childhood sector of health to actually do that because what happens is you know a child will experience toothache and so that's going to be difficult for them to eat and the language issues at the time um, you know for the zero to three-year-olds or this wide spectrum and so they can't ex exactly communicate that their teeth are sore. And so, you know, that how that pans out is that they don't want to eat because it's painful. And therefore, then a parent gets worried that they're not eating enough at dinner time. And so then there's this grazing habit that starts where they start eating foods that break down easily in the mouth, like snacks, such as um, crisps and whatever, or, you know, crackers that are also advocated for as snacks, as public health policy. And so what happens is the child and then other members of their family get into this habit of frequent grazing on food, which then leads to all sorts of outcomes and is associated with the dental caries, but is also a habit that's picked up very early on in the piece. And so, but yeah, and it's really interesting that you brought up gluten and casein in particular because my younger daughter was diagnosed with a non-celiac gluten sensitivity when she was four. And so, which we then started looking at other foods. And over time, we just realized that she was just having so much sugar and that was going to have other effects. I mean, she never developed tooth decay. We were a bit lucky in that regard. But, and that was part of what sort of drove looking at other ways of eating and where we came across the low-carb, healthy fat and how beneficial that is, not only for adults, but actually that would be beneficial for children as well too. But doing anything in, in the early years, it's quite emotionally fraught and there's enough parents these days are feeling hugely judged 
basically on whatever decision they make and having been there and done that and you know I'm close to people who are parents as well too and um, you see how that plays out and I think there is generally I don't know less parents are possibly feeling less secure there's so much bombardment of information these days that okay well what should I be doing should I be doing paleo should I be doing low carb should I be doing keto should I be doing um this that and the next thing but then you've got health professionals that say well these are the guidelines and these this is our health promotion strategy and which actually does fly in the face of a lot of the evidence around healthy eating so I think it's hard and I can absolutely empathize with parents but also health professionals who might sort of be going well what we're seeing or what we might be hearing out in the field for instance doesn't exactly tally with what we've been told but they can't exactly say anything about it because of risk of professional censure or whatever comes from that so it, it is difficult but just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it in a way I'd be um you know you'd be sort of you know morally and ethically we should be doing something in many ways but it's actually how to present that and possibly the way forward might be coming to an agreement that the ultra processed food environment does have a range of impacts on health in all sorts of ways whether it's a high intake of sugar the vitamin deficiency the addictive properties of these food and maybe that's where we one solution might be rather than just looking at foods or diet, healthy eating on the basis of macronutrients like fat or carbohydrate or proteins because people don't shop typically for fats carbohydrates and proteins that's not what's on our list when we go shopping I, I have a shopping list over there but it's got foods on it it doesn't have I'm going to go and buy fat today or I'm going to go and buy carbohydrates today and that would possibly be more coherent and possibly be a more logical place for starting these sorts of conversations around healthy eating. And yeah. look at the processing levels of foods in, in a similar way to how they've written the dietary guidelines in Brazil, for instance, where there's quite a lot of work being done on the processing levels of food in a way that's possibly more coherent for consumers. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I think it's good that Brazil are focusing on the process level because people want a quick go to, you know, they don't want yeah. 10 layers of how to's and, you know, we all want iPhones, but we shouldn't each be expected to know how to build one. And so yeah. we want, yeah. and it's under, it's it's completely reasonable to expect shortcuts Um, maybe, maybe the processing level is, is, a, is as decent a, a shortcut as any but um i don't want to cut our conversation short but i think no I've run out of time I, I've, I've got a wee bit longer um yeah. but I, I i guess i guess we could just round it off by saying what what you've got coming up and um where people can find you and join in the conversation um, well probably the easiest way to contact me is via my twitter account at sjhancocknz um, or, you know, anyone can find me on Facebook as well, too. Um, and, yeah, just to discuss this a bit more, I've submitted several papers for publication. Um, I'll send you the links, Ali, to those papers um, that you can pop up on there. One of them's a 
critique of the New Zealand dietary guidelines with that oral health focus. Um, the other is a systematic review that we did looking at the high and frequent intake of um, sugar and starchy foods um, and where we found that those foods or the frequency of intake is associated with increased carries burdens. Um, yeah, but to, to round off with, I think, you know, we know that poor diet has an impact on not just general health, but oral health as well too, through a range of um, pathways. You know, there's the systemic inflammation, there's the um, vitamin deficiency, because we know that um, various vitamins are associated with um, optimal oral health, um, just the frequency of food intake. And so we just really need to come up with a way in which an intervention that'll benefit oral health is likely to ge benefit general health as well too, and they should be treated as one and the same, really. Well, I agree. You know, it seems like oral health is a really good canary in the coal mine. It arrives very mm. early. Uh, poor oral health arrives very early on the scene. It's not like you have to wait for someone to become diabetic in their 50s. No. Um, you okay. can, like you say, $175,000 a day being spent on children under five having general anaesthetics to have teeth removed. It's, it's a disturbing statistic. And, um, I was really glad to be able to talk to you about it. So thanks again. Yeah, I mean, telling people, telling small children that they're overweight is never going to go down well, is it? Or telling their parents that their child is overweight. But if they're presenting with a dental problem to with which needs addressing straight away, um, because that in and of itself is problematic, you know, it does have an effect on speech development, has an effect socially, it's painful. Um, maybe that will be the way by which we can, um, I hate to say the word intervene, but um, do something with regard to prevention of further um, adverse outcomes down the road in the life course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah, it's a brilliant point because, you know, not to extend the conversation too much longer, but, yeah. you know, there's a very important distinction that I think responsible doctors uh, and healthcare professionals talk about um, people with a condition, not um, the obese. So I think mm. fat is so stigmatized that um, it's much more likely to hear someone being described as a fat person rather than a person with obesity. Whereas I think mm. someone who has dental problems, it's much more that it's much more detached from them as an individual, which I think yeah. is a great opening uh, to get the yeah. thin end of the wedge in and help to start that conversation at least. Yeah, because we're all more than our conditions, aren't we? 100%. Um, yeah. And hopefully improving all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I really appreciate it, Sarah, and I hope you have a great day. Hey, thanks, Ali, for the opportunity to talk to you. It's been really great fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, we'll chat soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company.
That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks. See you next time.